Prime Minister Boris Johnson is back in Downing Street and has returned to work. But he is warning against complacency and is saying that the lockdown must remain in force for the time being. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization warns that having the virus once doesn't necessarily mean that you can't get it again. And there is a rare but serious new syndrome in children that could be linked to COVID-19. I'm Marcus Stead. Please stay with us as veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins joins me to try to make sense of this deeply concerning global situation. Well, Greg, the government's policy of keeping pressure off the NHS with this lockdown has, to a large extent, been a success. It's taken until today for the first patients to be needed at the um, Dragon's Heart Hospital in Cardiff. And we see it up and down the country with the Nightingale Hospitals in England as well, how the NHS has not been overwhelmed. And in that sense, the lockdown has been a success. I would say the most concerning development of the last seven days has been the World Health Organization now saying um, that if you've had the virus once, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have it again. Now, you and I have been saying this all along. There was no clarification about whether having the virus once gives you one month, three months, six months, 12 months, a lifetime's immunity, or at the other end of the spectrum, no immunity at all. The World Health Organization has now said as much. And with them saying that, I think that's been a wake-up call throughout the world about the sheer magnitude of what we're dealing with. Oh, I would agree with you entirely. And um, hence, um, we've been saying, as you remind people, uh, since the very beginning, that we don't know what the immunity will be. But the fact that the World Health Organization has said that uh, anything, um, I don't think is worth listening to. Um, because they've proved themselves to be completely unreliable, totally untrustworthy, and with uh, bias of their own making. Um, so they are really a rather worthless organisation. They haven't managed to keep anybody in line any more than the European Union has managed to come up with a policy uh, that anybody in within the European Union, none of the vassal states... Well, with that in mind, with that in mind, where, where is the leadership coming from? Because I don't like the expression leader of the free world. It's a cliche we hear a lot. But if you were to say Donald Trump as president, the United States is leader of the free world. What well, we well should, we'd all be dead by now. Well, yeah, what we saw last week was I, I actually watched that press conference live. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing when he was speculating about. I, I'm even reluctant to repeat it on here because it's so foolish and I don't want anyone even thinking that this is a good idea. But I'm going to have to say it for, to illustrate the example. He was saying about injecting um, disinfectant into your veins and shining sunlight on your internal organs. How on earth you do that? I've got no idea. But again, stupid, dangerous things, which again, no, no doctor with any credibility would even contemplate. And it was widely condemned very, very quickly. I couldn't believe that I don't even know, I don't even like the expression most powerful man in the world, but a man of his stature and the office in which he holds, he has completely disgraced the office of the President of the United States in a way no other president has ever done, as far as I can tell. To be fair, Marcus, um, he did manage to compound his utter irresponsibility the following day by proving to everybody that he didn't even understand what the word sarcasm meant. 
Well, yeah, and he was, he was trying to wriggle out of it. Now, how on earth do you even make a, a mistake as stupid as that in the first place, but then make the matter worse by claiming he was being sarcastic the next day? I've never known anything like this. But again, it goes to show, you mentioned the World Health Organization, and yes, I agree with you. I agree with you about the way the European Union has handled this has been appalling. Then you get this from the President of the United States. This is a global situation. There is no escape from it, no matter who you are or where you live. Where is the leadership coming from? Because this is going to require, to get this thing sorted, it's going to require a worldwide global approach. Now, to explain a little bit more by what I mean by that, we've got this situation in New Zealand. Now, we talked a little bit about New Zealand last week, but Prime Minister Arden went in hard and fast with a lockdown very early on. As you rightly said at the time, New Zealand is effectively two very beautiful islands, but nowhere near anywhere else. So there's the remoteness work to their advantage. But they had this very hard lockdown. And Prime Minister Arden has said, right, now we're going to move up to the next stage, which effectively, if you look at it in real terms, what's happening in New Zealand is they're now moving to a stage of lockdown, which is more or less the sort of lives people in Britain have had to lead, where, super, where supermarkets are open to a point, takeaway outlets are there to take food away. But this is certainly nowhere near a return to normal life in New Zealand. The schools are staying closed. Um, the, the bars and restaurants, the seating areas all remain closed, certainly no sporting events or mass gatherings. Now, Prime Minister Arden has got a problem here, and it's not that different in Australia, but in, in New Zealand, they've got a big problem. In that as soon as she starts allowing flights into the country, the virus is very likely to return with it. So she's got a big problem there. And what I'm getting at is, okay, she has achieved, eliminated the virus up to a point in New Zealand. But unless we work as one world and have clear coordinated leadership, you could get rid of it in one country and then sort of have a country which you can't get in or out of. But then you open it up and it comes back. You, get, you see what I'm getting at. This, this is a, requires a worldwide response. I just don't see the leadership of people of stature, whether it's the World Health Organization, the President of the United States, the European Union, Nobody is coordinating this in the correct way to get the whole world on board, which is what we need right now. It ain't going to happen. We are going to, if we're not damn careful, wipe ourselves out through obduracy and stupidity. Mm. Um, not the virus, um, mm. but failure to deal with it intelligently. And you ask, who is the leadership? The leadership is individual nation states. Um, it always has been, um, regardless of uh, the element of allies. Uh, we may be very good allies with America. Uh, we may have fought two wars alongside each other. But um, the Americans are all under the impression that uh, they won the war and we weren't actually there. But if you ask Americans why the Second World War happened, very few of them have a clue. Um, they really don't know what was going on. Uh, even the things like the Holocaust are uh, considered not really part of the reason they were in the war. Yeah, we know about the insularity of the United States and the fact that a very large number of Americans never Yes, but to go on from there, Marcus, yeah. Yeah. we also have the situation that uh, we are again and again and again uh, drummed into us as if it was gospel truth um, that six million 
Jews were killed in the war. We haven't got a clue how many were killed. Oh, it was in the millions. You know? I think that that is safe to say it was in the millions. And that that look, if it was ten, it was Marcus, too many. Let me finish. Let me finish. We haven't got a clue. If there were ten, that was too bloody many. Hmm. But the six million figure has come up in previous situations. We are all focused on the Holocaust, and we accept it. And anybody within any intelligence, I've been to many of those. Um, death camps. I know it's true. I have seen the layout. I have seen what was happening. My father was in the liberation of one of them, Bergen-Belsen. So I know it's true that it happened. But what I, the point I'm trying to make is how many people who know that the Holocaust happened um, in America and in Britain, and in other parts of Europe, are aware that um, Lenin's operation led to over five million of his own citizens dying of starvation and selling the body parts of family members on tables in markets as food and the... <laughs> The, the government turned a blind eye on the police because the starvation was so bad. How many people are aware that the Cultural Revolution, as it was called in China, Mao Zedong killed between 50 and 100 million Chinese? Who really re appreciates Pol Pot and taking his country back to the year zero? and the millions who were killed. Who is aware of the millions who were killed by Stalin and so on and so forth? We all live within our own little national bubble. We are kowtowing to the information that we are given by what have proved to be over centuries, self-serving, incompetent politicians. We're in the position in Britain at the moment that we haven't got a good leader, but we do definitely have the best of those that would wanted the job or are available or could do it. Uh, but there's leadership and there's leadership, isn't there? Because look, what I saw from John, Donald Trump last week, I was utterly appalled and disgusted. And I've seen presidents, uh, I, I'm not going to say I've seen good and bad presidents. I rate some presidents we've seen far more highly than I do others. But what I saw last week took it to a new low that I have never, ever seen. And I don't think has been seen in what are we now, 44 presidents in American history? I don't yeah. think we've seen a low like this, where he was blatantly talking such complete and utter, unfathomable dangerous rubbish that was very, very quickly condemned by the scientific community. And yes, inevitably, there were a small number of people who we now know injected um, disinfectant and bleach into their veins, thinking it would cure this based on this peculiar cult that Trump has got around him of the Red Baseball Cat Brigade, who've been supporting him all along and worship every word he says. 
a small number of people still do think like that and, and took him at face value. But at a time when, okay, yes, I do believe in the unit of the, the nation state. We need leadership. We ain't getting it. Well, as I said on a, on a, a podcast with somebody else um, a day or two ago, uh, they said, but how could Trump believe that anybody would be so stupid as to assume that was advice and I said the simplest way he could do that is just look in the mirror if he's looking for somebody stupid mm, yeah and that that's the situation we've now got but again we, ha we have the vice president wandering around a medical facility um, a university hospital in America where the policy is everyone in the in this facility will wear masks he's in a room full of um consultants patients lead doctors directors of the hospital who are all wearing masks he isn't wearing a mask because mm. he's such an ignorant little man that he won't even obey these rules because as a sycophant of trump he thinks he is above the law yeah, and, and that is another big problem. So as a nation state then, okay, let's go back to New Zealand briefly. Prime Minister Arden did what she thought was in her country's best interest in terms of doing everything she can and the people around her doing everything they can to eliminate the virus among the population. You have to say it has succeeded. However, there's a big question about now what? Now, their options are, it seems, there are two things they can do. The first is, is continue okay, they've eased off a little bit the isolation, the very strict isolation. They're now more or less at British levels in terms of uh, what you can do in terms of shopping and so forth and going out and buying things and walking around. They can either continue in this way and hope that a vaccination will come along at some point, or they can start to open up and allow flights in and allow, allow larger gatherings and normal economic life to resume and almost certainly bring the virus back with them. That is, if you like, the limitations of the nation state in that to normalize life, you're going to need cooperation. Now, for example, if Scott Morrison in Australia, he's not quite there yet, but if he gets it down to New Zealand levels, you can see how flights between New Zealand and Australia could operate and they could keep things going between themselves, that couple of hours flight. But beyond that, you can see how the virus could easily spread back. So what I'm saying is, it's clearly this sort of intelligent leadership is not going to come from Donald Trump, but something needs to happen from global level to coordinate this. So when you've stamped it out of certain countries, it's gone and won't come back. We're not getting that at the moment, are we? Well, effectively, uh, all that New Zealand and Australia have, uh, have done by um, this policy of uh, complete isolation um, is a brilliant idea if you want to be isolated from the rest of planet Earth. Um, of course, they won't be able to import oil from anywhere because they don't have any oil of their own. Uh, so it will have to stop being an oil-based economy soon. Uh, they aren't going to be able to export anything um, because that requires shipping and it requires people going to and fro and the risk of catching the disease. Uh, Australia will have to give up shipping coal um, and so they might as well burn it themselves, mightn't they, and stop all, with all this uh, stupidity with um, claims of climate change due to mankind and 
they can stop building these fatuous windmills and solar panels. All right, all right. We get but your they point. Won't we have get the your technology point. Technology to build them anyway. Yeah, we, we get your point that for if Australia and New Zealand want to continue with this situation for any length of time, they're going to have to radically alter their economy. And by the sounds of it, the only based on what you just said, the only way around this would be to actually, okay, get all your energy from coal and try and find ways around the oil situation. Goodness knows how you're going to do that. But I, I, see, what, I see what you're getting at. Yes, they've succeeded in containing it to this point, but this is a problem for any country that succeeds in getting cases down to a bare minimum or even non-existent. Soon as you start letting people in, whether it's via planes or ships or anything else, you risk bringing the virus back with you. And we remember in the very, very early days of how this came to Britain, you remember we had those eight coaches of uh, people who'd been on the cruise ship being taken up to the hospital in Wirral in, in January, yeah. early February, whenever it was. And yet the virus whether it came in from China on a plane or Italy on a plane, we'll never know the answer to that. It spread among the population very, very quickly. So we can see how that happens. But turning on to domestic matters then in Britain, I don't know about you, but it, it's been talked about a lot in the media this week. I live very near a very busy A road, as you know, and it has seemed clear to me that people are losing their discipline. Now, for example, Yes, there are more cars on the road than there were a week, 10 days ago. But another thing concerning me is that, um, that there's a, a world food shop not far from where I live. And I went in there about a month, five weeks ago. And the fella who was serving me on that occasion, he had a mask over his face. Um, between uh, each customer, he was spraying down the, the, the checkout belt with disinfectant. He even tried to sell me a mask at the checkout. Uh, I didn't buy one, but um, he was taking huge amounts of precautions. I was in that same shop on Sunday evening. Admittedly, it was a different person who served me. There were none of those things. There was no spraying down at the checkout. There wasn't even any spray at the entrance when you pick up your basket. I think people are becoming a little bit lax. Oh, I would agree with you. Uh, I live on Nay Road, uh, the A48. Um, the main route in and out of um, southern Wales, other than the M4, and there is more traffic. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but there is still only a fraction of the traffic there was uh, previous to this lockdown, and a very, very high percentage of uh, the lorry traffic is in fact food deliveries um, with to major depots and i think the lockdown is working quite well because i am aware that a number of businesses are still functioning um, aerospace for instance in filton is still functioning uh, i have a neighbor who he and his uh, partner and uh, his son uh, work there and they go over in three different vehicles because they're all in different departments and it's a big labor force at Filton and they come back every day from there because they're working on the fighter plane uh, the British fighter plane so they are continuing but we notice that um, if you're in the defense industry, you're still uh, involved. Hence, Boeing is still 
uh, trading, but um, Airbus is teetering on the brink of having to um, go into administration. Yeah, there's been a lot of bad news around in the last day or so in relation to that. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of staff at British Airways and um, personal friends of mine have been affected by this. So my thoughts are very much with those who work at British Airways at the moment, looking at the bigger picture in terms of aviation. Well, We've I think they've had... laid off 12,000, Yeah, they? You're, you're correct, you're correct, yeah. There's also been some bad news from uh, John Lewis department stores today. They've said that uh, some of their 50 stores will never reopen. Um, we know about the problems Debenhams are having. We've seen the Royal Mail this last few hours have announced that um, Saturday deliveries are going to stop for the time being. Um, one friend of mine, a journalist, has said he wouldn't be at all surprised if they don't return at any point Saturday deliveries because of the way things, uh, things are in general. This combined with a general trend in less mail being sent may not... Who's going uh, to deliver all the junk leaflets? Not well, not my problem, thank goodness. But we, we can see there's lots of bad news around. But in terms of the, the lockdown, there are grey areas, aren't there? Because we saw the announcement from B&Q, uh, who've had problems of their own in the last few years with closing down stores, but that's another story. They announced that a small number were going to reopen and then a far larger number reopened. There are grey areas in that we were told only to leave our houses for essential journeys, uh, to buy food or to go to essential work or frontline services. In terms of DIY stores, like for example, in one of the properties I own, the toilet system is going to need changing in the near future. Now, that is something that one could consider essential work, and therefore a DIY store needs to be open for that purpose. However, there were people who were being vox popped on the news when um, the, the B&Q, somewhere or other, wherever it was in England, I think, reopened at the start of the week. And they were people past retirement age. And they would say, no, no, we're just here because um, we've been doing up our garden and we just needed to get out and about, get some bits and bobs for the garden. So what I'm getting at is I can see how as time goes on, as the lockdown continues week after week after week, how what is defined as an essential service changes because that toilet does need fixing and there may be leaks and bits of plumbing work that need doing and plumbers and members of the public need access to those things. But it does seem as though, like those people who were there to get bits and bobs for their garden, that's not essential. How we define this, do you think, do you agree with me that when Boris Johnson returned to work at the start of the week, he should have addressed the nation, not from outside Downing Street, but in primetime television in the evening on all the major channels and said, look, we have got to continue with the lockdown. Please only go out for food, your hours daily exercise, keeping your distance from others when you're out doing your exercise and for essential work that cannot be done from home. Because people like that, that those old people I mentioned went to the garden center, they didn't really need to be out. And then being out has put themselves at risk, the staff at risk, and potentially people who come into contact with them elsewhere at risk. I think that an element of not laxity, but intelligent choice should be available. There is one very big reason for this. You have to keep people occupied if they're at home. I would have no objection to stationers being open as long as they observe social distancing and um, dependent on the size of the stationers, uh, a very limited number of uh, um, 
people in the shop at any one time. Uh, I think the same should be true of libraries where people can get uh, their books because there are people who are in a position of desperately needing something to do at home, reading and the like. And okay, uh, you and I are, are fortunate in that we tend to use our computers extensively, but an awful lot of people don't and don't even know how to use it extensively. Yes, they may have a computer. Uh, they may uh, be sending uh, messages to each other, but there's no concept of research or um, in many cases, the intellect to be interested in research. Uh, okay, so there, there are grey areas then, as we've established. But in terms of, uh, okay, going back to that, that example again of the people in the garden centre, in, in the DIY store, um, who just wanted to look at the plants and what have you. And what I think the penny dropped with them a little bit because they had to socially distance and queue to get in. And once they were in, they had to follow the arrows around. So... I'm guessing that they realized that it wasn't a nice, pleasant trip out and a break from the house that they thought it was going to be, because shopping at the moment of any sort is not pleasant. But I, I think it would have helped if Boris Johnson had said, look, please, only, again, reiterate, only leave your house to buy food or essential things or, or for key frontline work. Because I think people are laxing a little bit now. And I noticed it. I gave the example of when I went to the international food store. I noticed it in a well-known supermarket where the, one of the fellas on the end of the aisle where I was coming down, he bumped into somebody he knew and their faces were just inches apart from each other. And they were talking about their families and so forth to each other. Uh, people are a little bit lax now, I think. Yeah, uh, true. Uh, but uh, for instance, you're well aware that I have quite a large garden and um, all of a sudden no nurseries. Where the hell do I get my seedlings to plant in the vegetable garden? Mm. Um, that will affect the whole of the year ahead in terms of vegetables okay fortunately i found a way around it but i did have to find a way around it i would like to see nurseries reopen for that type of purchasing and i have no problem there i have no problem with people uh, with faulty toilets needing to fix them um, nor, in fact, do I have a problem with uh, people requiring paint and decorative products to be able to improve the home that they are living in 24-7. But I've been buying things for work that I've done around the home, fixing things uh, since the lockdown, but I have bought absolutely everything on click and collect. Mm. Mm. and my local screw fix and a couple of other companies i go online i find what i want i order it i pay for it and um, it's ready one hour later for me to collect when i get there they have a table outside uh, they ask your name you're distanced from anyone else they when it's your turn to come to the table, they ask your name. Uh, you're standing six foot back from the table. They bring your goods out. They put them on the table. 
when they've stepped away, you step forward, pick it up and go away immediately. Mm. And that is the only realistically acceptable way for that type of shopping to continue. I don't have a problem with people doing it. I don't have a problem with people driving to and from doing it. Mm. Uh, I tend not to go into the supermarket for several reasons. Um, my age, I have a um, past its sell by um, heart condition. Um, I have um, a long track record of cancer and cancer treatment. Uh, I'm avoiding people. I don't have a problem with it. I have conversations with uh, my neighbors from a distance in the garden. Um, it's a little difficult having very uh, well punctuated conversations with my neighbors across the road, um, having to stop every uh, so often for a lorry, uh, a food lorry to go past. Um, you know, it just acts as punctuation. Yeah, I think what you've got to bear in mind is that, okay, we know your age is 74, but as 74-year-old people go, you are internet savvy, you can order what you want, you get, you know, you've got click and collect, you can order deliveries to your home and everything else. A lot of people your age and older are not that internet savvy, and it's very hard for them to not take the sort of risks if they need to get hold of stuff. That, that is a problem. I mean, I, I've, I've been a big believer for years in teaching older people how to use technology, not because I thought something as drastic as this was going to happen, but because it gives them a great degree of independence um, as they become less physically mobile. Um, so in that se sense, you are one of the fortunate ones, aren't you? Oh, I'm very fortunate. We live in a comfortable house. Um, we haven't got money to burn, but we've got enough to um, fulfill our needs. Um, but it's taken me a lifetime to get there. <laughs> mm. um, and we have a, a sizable garden, um, which most of the time I wish was the size of a postage stamp. But I'm very glad that at the moment it's a, sort of a, what is it, one, two, three tennis courts sort mm. of size. Mm. Um, We've also sorted out our next door neighbor's garden because she's 83 and rarely goes outside the house. And her husband um, started with dementia, uh, what, about eight, eight nine years ago. And uh, she looked after him with dementia at home for four or five years. And then he was at home for a year. And then um, he died nearly two years ago so for at least seven years nobody has touched their garden so mm. uh, my wife and I um, offered to clear it because it was beginning to invade our garden and when you've got uh, as she had 70 feet by 50 feet of eight foot high brambles um, it did really rather need clearing yeah, and, and the reason Greg is really telling us this is that his hands are covered with scratches from stinging nettles and goodness knows what, aren't they? And uh, <laughs> Yeah, but... yeah you, you've, you've had a rough week in that sense. But um, I just want to talk now about something that's... Do it in there. Yeah, it's changed a bit today, though, hasn't it? But, um, yeah, uh, 
looking at where we are now with the way the government, the UK government now is handling the situation. And I've questioned before on this in last week and the week before, I think we talk, I talked about how I didn't think the 5 p.m. daily press briefings were really doing us any good now. But there was a very funny uh, screenshot that um, Tim Montgomery put up on Twitter the other day about this sort of the line of questioning we're getting from the mainstream media, particularly at these 5 p.m. press conferences, where they're not asking serious questions about trying to find out more about it or looking for obvious flaws in it. But Tim Montgomery put this, this screenshot up, and I think this summarizes it very well. If Matt Hancock, that's the English Health Secretary, announced that the UK had created a COVID-19 vaccine, the press questions would be as follows. The BBC. Will you apologize for not creating it sooner? ITV. Is it true that it contains animal products? Channel 4. Wouldn't this have been quicker and more lives saved if the UK had joined the EU vaccination scheme? Sky News. You said creating a vaccine would take a year. Do you now accept that you were misleading Parliament, the media and the general public? The Daily Mirror. Isn't it true that austerity stopped the vaccine being made sooner? The Guardian. Do you accept the evidence suggesting vaccines are racially biased? And that, okay, it's a Mickey take, admittedly, but... It's not. That is, well, that is the sort of level of questioning we're getting, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. It's rather pathetic little journalists hopping from leg to leg, um, trying to look as if they have a clue what they're talking about, and they haven't. Uh, the only information they've got is from interviewing each other. Mm. And they're asking questions as a means of virtue signaling, and hmm. trying to make political points. And it, it's, it's a silly game of one-upmanship is one what it is. Iota. There is no con contribution from the media. It has been purely trying to exploit the situation for their own gain. And is, is it any wonder that, in, by and large, politi uh, not politicians, well, then almost as bad, but journalism and the media have collapsed, not only in people's uh, respect for them, but in their turnover. Newspapers, their, their figures have, are falling like a brick. Uh, mainstream media, the, the television and the radio, they're, they're way down, their turnover is down. The BBC is furloughing people. Hmm. Mm. Um, but you can bet your life that the idiots on high salaries that nobody is really very impressed with, um, the clowns and janglers will still be there earning high salaries. It seems clear to me that a very large number of people, an increasing number of people, are not impressed with the way the mainstream media is behaving. I won't go into it now because we haven't got enough time to go into it, but the long and short of it is we've had at least, I would say the last 15 years, possibly a bit longer, of cutbacks, cutback, cutback, cutback in every major news outlet, whether it's BBC, ITN, Sky News has been hit particularly hard by this. And therefore, the calibre of person working both in front of the screen on camera and behind the scenes has declined. They're relying very heavily on very young people and people with very little experience have got no one older than them. Yeah, no one older than them to learn from. And this is, this is well, it ha it's not a particularly recent thing. It's, it's affecting the quality of what we see quite considerably. Now, I remember a time 
uh, maybe 15 years ago when Sky News was a very serious alternative to the institutional bias of the BBC, when you had Jeremy Thompson, Peter Spencer, Glenn O'Glaser, uh, Lorna Dunkley, Chris Roberts, people like that, Tim Marshall, all working there. They've all gone now, and the, the, the gravitas of the sort of person working there now is nowhere near as good. And what we're seeing is, particularly the 5 p.m. briefings, is this sort of silly game of one-upmanship where we don't learn anything, and they're not trying to constructively get answers out of the government, but they're just trying to trip them up at every opportunity. And, well, even the, the, yeah, the decline of, of programs like Newsnight brings, brings that about. I think Newsnight is now well below, below a million viewers uh, per night. But there's something I do want to talk about that I don't think has been talked about anything like enough in the mainstream media. And I'm going to take a minute to expand this point, and then I'll let you back in. The nature of political parties in this country has changed drastically, certainly over your lifetime and to a lesser extent over my lifetime. And by that, I mean, in 1950, the Conservative Party had 2.8 million members, all paying their annual subs, all taking part in local constituency activities, whether it's political debates, dance nights, ladies' nights, snooker teams, darts teams, skittles leagues, all that sort of thing. By 1970, that had gone down to 1.3 million. In 1988, it was 1 million. In 2008, it was 300,000. And in 2019, it was 191,000. So in other words, the Conservative Party has no grassroots and relies on donations from big business who in turn lobby them and want something in return. And that leaves the Conservative Party vulnerable to lobbying. And why this matters in the current context is because these are the sort of organizations, whether it's very, very wealthy individuals or big multinational companies or not, multi, not just multinational companies, but large companies that have a huge presence in Britain, in Britain. They are lobbying the government for an end to the lockdown for their own selfish reasons. And they seem to have nobbled quite a lot of conservative backbench MPs and perhaps even some cabinet members. So they're, in, they're lobbying for this. You know, they've given their large amounts of money to the Conservative Party. They want something in return. But at the same time, there's another side to this. And that is that if you allow the economy to reopen in the way these people would like, and yes, that would in the short term involve a higher VAT return and income tax return coming to the government, which could be used to fund the NHS, those benefits would very quickly be lost if, as seems highly likely, there was then a second rise in case, I'm not going to use the word peak, but a rise in the number of daily coronavirus cases that overwhelmed the NHS, it would not only undo all the work that's been done so far, but you could very quickly be back to square one. Your thoughts? Japan has just proved that. Uh, they were releasing, reducing their lockdown and um, one of their large areas, and I think it was Hokkaido uh, offhand, I, I did comment on it at the time on uh, Twitter, but don't actually remember um, exactly which city area it was, uh, had had such an immediate turnaround within uh, a little over a week that they have reintroduced them, uh, the lockdown, and harsher than original. You can't release the lockdown, whatever the reason, without maintaining social distancing and need only. 
not necessarily necessity, as I've already said, but need. You happen to need stuff for your garden. You need paint for your house. You need a new system um, or whatever it is, because these are the things that keep you in satiated in your own home. And the, this lockdown will, I, I do so hope, continue probably in one form or another through until this time next year. With I that thought in mind, how is the government going to, look, the government and also these Conservative backbench MPs who seem pretty clear to me have been nobbled by these uh, lobbying firms and lobbying individuals, Boris Johnson's going to have to take a very firm line with the very people who are funding his party if he's going to do as you suggest, which, I, by the way, I think is the right thing. I think he made it pretty clear he's prepared to. Mm. Mm. And I, of all the politicians uh, that could have been in the hot seat for this uh, appalling, terrifying, um, pandemic I can't think of one who would do the job better there are many things I can't stand about Boris Johnson um, on various aspects I'd trust him as far as I could kick him but that would be nothing like as far as I would want to kick any member of the opposition yeah, and I also think I we've got to be grateful for things like the by now, the country. I, I, by now. Yeah, I, I think in terms of prime ministers of my lifetime, with the possible exception of Margaret Thatcher, Boris Johnson is the best person of all the prime ministers of my lifetime to be managing a situation like this. And I say this as somebody I was writing articles questioning Boris Johnson's suitability for the, the role of prime minister going back some years now. And in many ways, I don't think he has the necessary skill set to be a good prime minister. However, cometh the hour, cometh the man. He has really risen to the challenge and he deserves, I think, our support at this time. Now, on a similar note to what we were discussing then about ending restrictions, there's been a, a discussion going on and I'm, I'm very, very grateful to Simon Jordan for the comments he made on Talk Sport earlier today about um, resuming football and resuming sport. Now, let me be absolutely clear where I stand on this. I am a football fan. You, Greg, are not. That's not really relevant to what we're going to say next. Because to me, resuming football anytime soon would make a complete mockery of social distancing rules. How could we allow players, even after testing, to be in close proximity through tackles, etc., while the government insists the rest of us keep two metres apart? The notion is bonkers. And if you allowed football to resume, or, or any other sport, rugby, same thing, all it would take is for one player, coach, physio, referee to become seriously ill with COVID-19 and the whole resumption would look utterly foolish. And furthermore, on a final point on this, inevitably in football, rugby players, they break their legs, their ankles get damaged, this, that and the other. Things happen and they need hospital treatment. And normally that's all right. We take the rough with the smooth, it happens and, and so forth. Under these circumstances, if a hospital... A&E department or even a different section of the hospital was very, very busy with COVID-19 cases. The doctors, the nurses are stressed out. Yes, it's quite right if you go to hospital 
uh, if you've had an accident at home or you're concerned you might have something seriously wrong with you, like a heart attack. But if you've been injured playing sport and that was preventable, then that, in, in, to me, is a preventable instance of where someone has had to go to a and e whereas they've had, they haven't taken part in that match, they wouldn't need it. So for me, it's no, no, and no again to resuming football, rugby, any sport where you've got to be in close proximity until all this is over. I would agree with you totally. And something else that I am continuously annoyed about um, is the number of pictures on the uh, television and uh, other media of the way the police are behaving. Mm. Uh, I have nothing but contempt for the majority of them wandering around in twos and threes, uh, not a mask in sight. They don't care about anyone else but themselves and um, all in close proximity. Mm. What yeah. a, an appalling example to give. It's almost as dire an example as police in uniform on uh, protest parades and um, politically correct virtue signaling parades um, jiggling and dancing looking as if they want to go to the toilet in a hurry mm. uh, I, i'm sorry i find this utterly beneath contempt and an insult to her majesty's commission which they've been awarded and demeaning to the force mm. Mm. But we've seen, this is just another aspect to me of the politicization of the police that's been going on for many years. Um, for example, I mean, I, you think about the old Dixon and Doc Green style policing by consent or the sort of copper, those of you who used to watch the bill, uh, people like Sergeant Bob Cryer, those sort of officers, they've given way now to this sort of politicized, politically correct, you know, whether it's them dancing in the street in the summer in their uniforms, taking part in LGBTQ plus pride marches, whether it was that thing, um, Paul Embry. Actually, I've got a lot of time for Paul Embry, um, even though he's a, he's a man of the left, but I've got a lot of respect for him. I think he talks a lot of sense on Twitter. He put a video up two, three weeks ago now, and there were a load of police in a police car park doing a dance to the BG staying alive in police uniform on police time. I'm sorry, I don't think that is acceptable. Their job traditionally was to uphold and enforce the law. They should be setting an example. They should be remaining utterly neutral on all matters political, uphold and enforce the law equally, fairly, and with consent, because it's policing by consent traditionally in this country. And I think what you're saying is correct. And the, the very notion of respect for the police and policing by consent is being lost with the examples you gave and on other examples of them behaving in a rather thuggish way, which has been caught on camera. Yes, I would agree with you entirely. They are not the police force I remember of the 60s who were always polite, whatever the circumstances. Now it's a bunch of over-equipped, opinionated yobs. Yep, yeah. Uh, them are covered in tattoos, look like lavatory walls covered in graffiti. Yeah, uh, and I, I actually think going beyond that, modern police uniforms look absolutely ridiculous as well. But we, that's that's one for another day. But I'm going to end um, end the serious stuff anyway with um, this business about various aspects of the media. I'm not just talking about the David Ike Brigade who are putting wacko conspiracies out there, but 
people like Peter Hitchens, who is continuing this narrative, not only in his Mail on Sunday column, but also he gets invited onto Mike Graham's programme every Monday on talk radio. Um, he's continuing this narrative that the lockdown isn't necessary, and, and he's, he's saying some quite crazy things, in my view. And if I was to summarise it, there was a comment on a, on a social media forum I saw the other day. Hitchens' argument goes something like this. After putting in a burger alarm, getting a guard dog, and putting new locks on the door, I haven't been burgled. What a waste of money. That seems to be the Peter Hitchens' argument about the lockdown. In that, oh, the NHS hasn't been overwhelmed. We didn't need to do it, did we? Well, the correct question to ask is, if we didn't do it, would the NHS have been overwhelmed? And the answer to that is very, very likely to be yes. And I just find it extraordinary that, bearing in mind, Peter Hitchens, he saw what happened to Boris Johnson three weeks ago, where Boris Johnson was fighting for his life, and it was touch and go for a while. And Boris Johnson is not an elderly man in a care home. He's the prime minister in his mid-50s. Oh, take it even more personal for Peter Hitchens. In the late 1990s, into the early, well, the year 2000 it ended, he presented a Sunday morning program on the original incarnation of talk radio, which became talk sport. Uh, it was called Grilled on Both Sides. His co-presenter was a guy called Derek Draper, um, former advisor to Peter Mandelson. And Peter Hitchens was the man on the right. Derek Draper was the man on the left. And they disagreed about everything. Derek Draper, here we are 20 years later, he's married to the TV presenter, Kate Garraway. Derek Draper, again, I would say early to mid-50s, I think he is a little bit overweight, but no obvious health problems beyond that. I know he had mental health problems, but physically no uh, physical health problems. He is very, very ill indeed in hospital right now with coronavirus, COVID-19, fighting for his life. Kate is not in work because she's very upset at the moment, understandably. She's not on Good Morning Britain doing her job. She's giving occasional updates. She's clearly very ill. So this has touched Peter Hitchens personally in terms of what's happened to our prime minister and what's happened to a man he worked with, not an old man, some years ago. And yet he's being, it seems to me, fairly blasé about it. I think that's absolutely astonishing, to put it mildly. Well, I think Peter Hitchens is going, going out of his way to make a complete fool of himself. But he does this from time to time. Um, he did it over MMR vaccination. Mm, which he never apologised for, by the way. He hoped that would quietly go away. He backed Andrew Wakefield, the, the discredited doctor, for years and years and years until he was pretty much the force stop, the stop, forced to stop being defensive of him. Peter Hitchens never backtracked on that, by the way. No, well, he's far too self-important to do that. And um, much as I like many of the things he's done, um, I think his problem is that he's desperately trying to um, pretend he has half the intellect his brother had. Um, and Christopher, who sadly died, um, ran rings round Peter, unfortunately. Um, I say unfortunately. Um, it's left um, Peter Hitchin with a terrible chip on his shoulder. I think so. I, I've noticed, how can I put this? Because he's someone I've been in contact with for the best part of 20 years. But I, I think there has been, I find some of his columns in the last few years increasingly bizarre and some of his pet hobbies, uh, pet subjects rather, increasingly bizarre. His hobby horses, if you like, increasingly bizarre. But his stance on this, I just find astonishing because you can just, just, just look at what the evidence straight in front of him. Boris Johnson, very, very ill a few weeks ago. Derek Draper, a man Peter has worked with, over an extended period of time, 
very, very ill at the moment and, and it seems to be struggling to get through this, go and ask people in care homes if this is a normal April's, April day or a normal April period. It's not. Ask nurses on the front line in hospitals if this is a normal period or just something we can dismiss as a minor inconvenience. It's not. It's something very major. For crying out loud, go and ask people in northern Italy in particular and people on the front line there or, or the funeral directors there. This is not a normal time. And for crying out loud, why is Peter Hitchens, in my view, I'm going to use some quite strong terminology here, why is he destroying his reputation by continuing this line that, it, it, that you know, it's, it's not necessary and we're overreacting and we're crashing the economy and everything and it's not necessary and we shouldn't be doing it, when it's clear that this is something on a magnitude none of us have seen in our lifetimes and it's something to be taken very seriously indeed. Why can't he just admit he got it wrong and now is the time to buck his ideas up and support the lockdown and the sensible measures that are in place? Because that's really what he should be doing. I personally think that we elected a given government, we put them in position to do the job, and it is an act of selfish and criminal stupidity not to back them because you're not going to change them at this stage. So back them because we can't have more than one leader at a time mm. under the circumstances as they now are. And with that thought in mind, then you say one leader at the time we've seen in the last 24 hours, how Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland has diverged somewhat from the UK government line. Mark Drakeford in Wales, again, he's been misreported. I'm not a Mark Drakeford fan by any means, but he's been misreported. He said, he didn't say the Welsh government was going to do things differently. He said that they had the power to do things differently and come out of a lockdown at a different time. But his preferred option was to follow a coordinated response with the UK government. What he did say, and again, this was not well reported on BBC Wales this evening. What he did say is that he wished that Whitehall would communicate with him more. That's really, that was really the point he was getting at, but that was misreported to the hilt. Well, they might but, do if they thought they could trust him. Well, yeah, but the reality is, whether you trust him or whether you don't, in these devolved areas, he has got the power to make decisions, and therefore it's best to keep him in the loop, I would have thought. But I do think there's one question I'd like to ask you. Yeah. I have an opinion, but do you agree with the government newly announced policy of paying the family members of members of the frontline services £60,000 if they die as a result of the virus. I was thinking about this yesterday because I could see both sides of it, but on balance, no. And the reason being is that I don't know where you draw the line with this because, right, first of all, let me make one thing clear. I have every sympathy in the world with people who've lost uh, doctors, nurses in their families. I'm very much aware that this is going to be mothers and fathers who are, uh, you know, children are left without mothers and fathers. But you can extend that logic to um, people in other emergency services. Care drivers. Yep, care workers, people who are visiting, uh, dropping essential deliveries. Job and, and, assistance. Yeah, and, and those who, you know, care in the community, help, that sort of thing. I'm not sure where you draw the line with this. And with that in mind, I think the bill for it, if you were to, if you were to apply it entirely fairly, the examples I just gave, the examples you just gave, 
I think the bill could end up being absolutely enormous. And that's not to take away, I'm very, very much aware of the magnitude of the loss. What's your thoughts? Enormous. And however enormous you make it, unfair. Mm. Because Mm. it is going to penalize some people and not others. Nobody Mm. gets a disease on purpose. Mm. Yeah. mm. You'll have politicians saying, well, I have to go to and fro. Um, to do my job so um, because somebody in my family caught it um, I can see it happening oh I'm a union rep I don't actually work in the health service um, Mm. but I deal with people who are in the health service okay it it, it is sudden look there is an old political maxim Mm. if you intend to open a can of worms make damn sure you've got a bigger can. And I don't think they've got a big enough can to hold that can of worms now they've opened it. Okay, okay. Mistake. Yeah, yeah, I think we're on the same page with this. But to take that down to another, another level, a friend of mine who has been furloughed from quite a skilled job at the moment, and I know he'll be listening to this, has taken a job uh, as a shelf stacker in a well-known supermarket to pass the time and to make a bit of money in the meantime. Now, if he, God forbid, became ill and died from this, uh, and he's a married man, um, and his wife got the £60,000 payment, look, it's not, a, it's not anything like the same level of training or skill as a nurse or a doctor, but you do need someone to put those groceries on the supermarket shelves, and you're glad he's there. Again, it would be unfair not to include his wife in the payments, wouldn't it? Based on that logic. Yeah, exactly. Mm, mm, yeah. So, so we're in agreement on this. So, all right, well, I'm going to round things off the way I always do. You've told us a bit already then about, uh, I try and end on a lighthearted note where I can, and you've told us already about the gardening and how you're passing the time and how you're keeping yourself cheerful at the moment. And we've had a little bit of good luck in one sense since the lockdown began with the weather. Now the weather is turning. How are you? fit and active 74-year-old-ish. How are you going to pass the time when it rains all week now? Um, I'm not going to have a problem. Um, There's plenty to do in the workshop. There's plenty to do um, in the house. And um, I am so behind on things that I'm meant to be doing on the computer. Mm. Um, I've got some long lists of things that I want to put up on to the various assorted websites and blogs that I uh, run and own. Mm. Um, I, 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 won't, I know I won't catch up. Mm. Um, so, no, I'm occupied. And I've never understood the word boredom anyway. Well, I know, I know that. Okay. In, with that in mind, then, I do believe that all of us, myself included, need to know when to switch off from all this horrible stuff that's going on in the world at the moment. We need to know when we've had our fill of news and information for the day and consume some light entertainment, whether that's in a good book or through television or through box sets and whatever. In terms of what you've been reading or what you've been watching for pleasure in the last week or so, what's doing it for you right now? Um, Well, I've been doing more on the internet. Um, I haven't actually sat down and watched um, television. Mm. Um, I've had the television going in one ear and been reading material on the computer um, at the same time. Mm. 
because most of the um, plots on television are designed for people with an attention span of 30 seconds. Uh, anyway. but, but, but it tends to be the drama channel with you, doesn't it? Because, you, yeah, you know, you, you've got... It doesn't matter what channel you're watching. Um, you can do something else at the same time because it's so lightweight. Yeah, but you've been watching stuff like Judge John Deed and New Tricks and that, haven't you? Uh, yes, but I, I'm on the computer all the time while I'm doing it. Yeah, and have you also seen how, because uh, ITV are particularly conscious about running out of episodes of Coronation Street and Emmerdale, they're spacing them out now, that tonight, uh, Wednesday night that was, they've started repeating Doc Martin at 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights now. I know you're a fan of that. Um, yeah, I've never... Um, I, I don't watch it on ITV. Yeah, you wait for it to turn up on drama, don't you? Yeah, and then um, it's sort of in a sequence. I can never work out what's on ITV. And you end up um, watching so many ads. And also, um, you get suckered into their propaganda. Uh, and I just don't want to know. Mm, mm. Uh, and I find their news completely unwatchable because um, they have people like Peston with his mangled English and his idiotic opinions. Yeah, um, Tom Bradby's the other one I can't stand on there. None of which I can be doing with. Mm. And um, Mateless on, on Newsnight. Oh. What embarrassment. I, the, woman I know. Is, the woman is as thick as a plank uh, and twice as boring. Well, the, um, thing about, the thing about Emily Maitlis, to me, is that she epitomises what I was talking about earlier when I said that she, there, there were certain journalists who were just trying to... Not, they're not trying to get... Not asking good questions and hoping to, you know, spot real loopholes in what the government's doing and try and clarify points and get... Because there is a lack of clarity at the moment. But she's not asking questions, trying to get clear answers. She's trying to trip the government up and try and do smart-ass things. And do you remember about two weeks ago, she delivered... like a fool. She delivered a monologue at the start of Newsnight about two weeks ago, which wasn't facts and analysis, which is what an impartial news outlet should be doing, but it was a two-minute monologue of her opinions, in effect. Now, I am not interested in her opinions. I'm not interested in the world according to Emily Maitlis. Your job is facts and analysis, and that's why you're there. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you about the state of uh, both I, ITV News. I, I like the six thirty bulletin. I think that's still pretty good. ITV News at ten, when you end up with this double act of Tom Bradby and Robert Peston, that just drives me up the wall completely. But um, yeah, so you're, you're battening down then for spending more time indoors in the next week or so. Well, so, uh, Rigsby, um, Kay Burley, Rigsby, Rigsby. Who's Rigsby? That's Rising Damp, isn't it? Um, what's her name then? Beth Rigby, you're thinking of on Rigby, Sky. That's right. Yeah, I, I can't even be bothered remembering her name correctly. Yeah. Um, Bolton, uh, Stephen Dixon, um, Hugh Edwards. Mm. Um, they're just moronic. Yeah, well, they're, they're all playing this silly game of one-upmanship where they're trying to trip up ministers, yeah, not learn anything. And who wants their opinion anyway? Yeah, and they're, they're, we're not learning anything from them. They're not good interrogative questions. They're not in the mould of Sir Robin Day or Brian Walden or people like that. That much is clear. Mm. But uh, anyway, that brings us to the end. Without a time again, thanks as always to Greg. My thanks to you for listening. Do please stay safe, stay indoors. Uh, if you do have to get out and about, do please acknowledge social distancing. Keep two metres, six feet apart. We'll see you next week. Stay safe. With 
intelligence, common sense, and think about others. Very well said, Greg. Thank you, Greg, and we'll see you all again next week.